everybody. Welcome to another episode of History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley. Ashley, what are we talking about today? <laughs> when I asked you to start, I thought you were going to say what the topic was, so I'm not convinced that you don't that you still don't know what it is. Look, we decided this an hour ago. I definitely remember. There's no need <laughs> so to try and topic, make the title. <laughs> today's topic is on things that you didn't know existed during during early firearms development. Yeah. So this one we thought be a fun look. At, we talked one time about like the wheel lock and exploring all the histories we could talk about, but we thought we could explore some early firearms history and then get into some of the stuff that you might not expect to have existed in, say, the 1500s. Yay. Okay. So it all begins with a big bang. <laughs> Literally. Literally a bang. <laughs> that was good. I think that might have been the best banter like we've ever had. And you ruined it. I think we just ruined it by talking about it. And complimenting ourselves. Um, but it did. It all began with a big bang. So prior to gunpowder weapons existing on the battlefield, you had, um, you know, longbows, crossbows were really your distance weapon. Um, and then all of a sudden there were cannons or guns. Guns, you know, a lot of people, um, times people interchange gun and firearm, but gun actually just means really any type of gun, whereas firearm is portable. And so it starts off with cannons and bombards. And then you get the first really handheld firearm in the mid to late 1200s. I think the- Are we just the, skipping fire lances? Like- yeah, I was skipping fire lances. Just, sorry, fire lances. You're not good enough for us. I also appreciate that like an hour ago, I was like, okay, we're going to do the hand cannon, <laughs> the matchlock, wheel lock, snap hands, Michelet in air quotes, um, and the flint lock. And you didn't say anything about fire lances. So you were just holding that in to make me look bad. But that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, really, I mean, we talk about, we always talk about hand cannons as kind of the first firearm because it is a portable, well, you know, cannon, basically. And I think the, the earliest example that still exists is what, from 1280 something? Is that correct, Danny? Something like that. Yeah, it's in a Chinese museum. Um, and then we have, there's documentation that also says that hand cannons could have been used um, in Asian conflicts in the 1260s. So, we know that they were starting to be used on the battlefield. Um, but what's really interesting is you get these kind of hand cannons and the way that they fire is it's a literal, like I said, cannon for your hand. So you've got you know, your touch hole, but you don't have any trigger mechanism or cocking mechanisms. You just basically have a piece of burning whatever uh, <laughs> rope and you touch it to the touch hole and there's gunpowder and the projectile inside the barrel and it fires the gun. So like a firework, I guess. Yeah. And, um, these aren't necessarily the first uses of gunpowder, but they're really yeah. the first uses of, and I think that's why we exclude the fire lance. And it wasn't on purpose to try and make you look bad. It's because I just thought of it right now too. So, um, <laughs> Because I looked up the Wikipedia page of early <laughs> firearms development right before we came on. <laughs> I didn't, but I should have. What about the arquebus? <laughs> <laughs> um, but really this is when we start, the dates we're talking about are like when we see things that we could reasonably call firearms. And then there's like, yeah. there's other things that, you know, maybe could qualify or are gunpowder based, but these are what we would say, these qualify as firearms of some sort. And yeah, it's just, it's simple. You touch a match cord or as um, 
uh, one of the folks that knows a lot about this explained something that's akin to a modern like sparkler that you get at the 4th of July, yeah. like um, to a touch hole, it ignites the gunpowder. Uh, and, you know, it's easy to see a lot of reasons why that's not ideal, uh, but that's the technology, although it quickly evolved into the matchlock. Uh, so the first like formal ignition system from these hand cannons where you're physically holding the match and touching it then involves into matchlock. And I said something hilarious apparently to Ashley. <laughs> Sorry. I'm laughing because, um, in our like little prep conversation that we had, I was like, we should talk about things that people don't know existed. And then he's like, <laughs> like the matchlock. <laughs> and this is where I meant to say matchlock revolver. And I just said the words matchlock in our prep. Um, and yeah. then I was really concerned about Danny's ability to take over as curator next next month. Um, but yeah, so for uh, but yeah, so you get the matchlock, and that's developed around fourteen hundreds. And the way that it operates, there's different variations on the matchlock. I mean, so some of them have triggers, but they don't all have to have the same type of mechanisms on them. Um, but the one that you see most traditionally has a trigger, but the trigger's not crisp like you'd think of a modern trigger. It's more like a lever pull system. And then you have this serpentine-like caulking mechanism um, that you take a piece of slow burning rope and you put that through there and you light both ends just in case and you know in case you need to, a backup and then you um, once it's you know smoldering and, and firing and you've got powder in the pan um, of the gun kind of like you think of more modern you know the more modern early guns um, you you know pull the lever or the trigger and that lowers the serpentine down into a pan where there's a touch hole and powder, which ignites the firearm. Yeah. And it's thanks to the renovation, we both got the chance to shoot a matchlock, which, and a hand cannon, which I'd never done before. And like that explanation of like the trigger, like it's so different from like once you're used to shooting modern guns and then you have to like squeeze this handle and it like slowly, slowly, slowly lowers this match. But then the ignition, once the match touches the gunpowder, is like super fast. Like, in yeah. my opinion, even faster than the, like it's faster than the lock time on like a flintlock. Um, so it's this combination of very fast and very slow that was unusual to say the least. And it's really exciting to have a, a burning rope because, oh, the explanation, the hammer doesn't fall like you think of like a traditional gun, which is like away from you. The, the serpentine usually falls towards you. So yeah, it's a like, burning rope coming towards your face. Yeah. And if you come to the museum, you can see me flinch on film. And um, you can I'm, work a wheel or a, whoop, oh, I almost gave away the next one, uh, <laughs> a matchlock trigger yourself in our science gallery. Um, and, and the matchlock was, you know, like you said, it was an effective you know, sturdy type of firearm. There were long guns, there were, there were handgun versions of it, but it was used up through the 1800s um, in Japan. Um, so there are, you know, just because you see a matchlock doesn't mean it's from the 1400s. I mean, it, it really had a long shelf life in terms of success and use. And even when you look at early, you know, frontier, or not frontier, early colonial settlement in the United States, um, there are, initially there are other technologies, which we'll talk about in a second, that are available, but it's not something that is really great for the conditions of the colonial settlements, the type of people that could fix those types of firearms. So they brought matchlocks over and you see those way more readily used than the next type of ignition system, even though they were around when people were coming over um, to North America. Do you want to say the next one? 
Well, and I was going to get, this is one of our first areas of things. Well, actually we could have talked about one of the things that doesn't exist already or not doesn't exist. <laughs> I was like, wait, different <laughs> it topics. exists. Um, we should well, not, no, we should, we, we should go through the whole thing. Okay. 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 Gotcha. Okay. All right. So the next action type, um, is a wheel lock and this is the one where you start to see a lot more sophistication in a system and where a trigger functions like you think a modern one should. And so a wheel lock is as described, it's a wheel that grinds against a piece of pyrite to create a spark and ignite powder in a pan. And then the powder ignition in that pan goes through a flash hole into the chamber, which ignites your main charge and launches your projectile. And, um, in, in many ways, it's much more recognizable as a firearm than, say, a matchlock or hand cannon, but it's also another, it's like exponentially more complicated than those systems. So um, one of the reasons, like, it doesn't, it comes in shortly after matchlocks do, but it never really fully replaces them. Um, shortly after, over a century. Yeah, I mean, well, and that's the other thing to, like, the caveat about these time periods. When we say, like, there's a difference in how long these systems stuck around versus like modern systems. Like we're used to the long lifespan of a firearm being like 50 years. Whereas a lifespan, of like the working life of a matchlock was, you know, potentially a century or more. What were people doing? They were just like sleeping on the job. Yes. Not... They, they really should have discovered better metals and machine tools a lot faster than they did. Yes. yes. So if any ghosts of old timey people listen to our podcast, like this is on you. Um, so the wheel lock is really the, it's the next step in the kind of conventional evolution of firearms history. And it enables, you know, much enables like a modern style trigger almost where, you know, you have a sear that's releasing the tension in the wheel and the coil spring or the V spring. But that's the other interesting part of that. Um, as I talked over you during when you were saying that, um, was the fact that the trigger releases a wheel and not the hammer. Did you already say that? And I just wasn't listening. Yes, I did. Or I was starting to say that. And... Okay, that was what I talked. Okay, I was like, as I was like saying that, because I think that's really cool. I was like, oh wait, did he already say that when he was doing his like professor speak on how a wheel lock fires? And I just totally wasn't paying attention. Well, and I started to say a coil spring, but I don't think originals actually used coil springs. I think they all used V springs. Maybe I should have read the Wikipedia for Vendetta. Um, not V springs for Vendetta. Um, <laughs> But the, they used a V-spring and it held tension in the wheel. And one thing that I did not know, well, there's a couple things about wheel locks that I didn't know when I first got into guns and first found out about them, was that the wheel only rotates like a quarter or a half turn. I thought yeah. it was spinning and spinning and spinning, but it only, it rotates a pretty short distance to create the spark. Um, Which made it a really boring interactive. Right, like we're like expecting this thing that can just spin and it's like, uh, this Actually, it was like tick <laughs> when you press the trigger. It was so lame. So you get the wheel lock, and then um, what a lot of people think with the wheel lock um, when they see it is that the jaws of the cock would. <laughs> um, gosh, I gotta grow up someday. Um, I'm retiring soon. <laughs> it's probably not gonna happen. Um, but the the cocking mechanism holds pyrite, not flint. So that's something that a lot of people kind of assume it's flint, but it's not. Um, and then we move on to several iterations of what becomes a true flint lock in the 1620s. But uh, what are those other two mechanisms, Danny? So the two most common are the snap hands and- the, Yeah, there's lots of variations. Yeah, there's all sorts of little, and there's regional variations to how all this stuff works. 
um, because you know they couldn't hop on Google and tell everybody, hey, I invented a wheel lock. I'm going to display it at SHOT Show. Um, you know, like that didn't happen. So it took a long time for some of this stuff to disseminate. Um, and, but yeah, the two most common are the snap pants and the Michelet lock. And um, really they're based on using a flint and a spring. So they're really just early versions of a flint lock. The later thing we know is a flint lock is really, um, it moves the parts to sort of the inside of the mechanism and simplifies the whole system and um, strengthens it and strengthens it. So really when we talk about these systems, we're kind of talking about like proto flint locks almost. Yeah. Um, and eventually. And, the, and what's interesting is that the Michelet term is uh, basically a term that was attributed to it later. So yeah. Michelet is not a contemporary term to the development of that type of early flintlock. Yeah. And the terminology for the time period is all, is sort of all over the place. My favorite is firelock. We don't use that anymore. And I wish. Yeah. Um, but eventually, yeah, you get to the flintlock, what we recognize as a flintlock that ignites, you know, it's still the same steps. You have a muzzle loader typically um, with a main charge and a projectile and then a pan full of powder and the, the flint in the jaws of the cock hits the hammer or frizzen or steel. There's multiple names for these. There's things. so many names of all these things. Yeah. And that flint striking the hammer or the frizzen um, ignites the, the, the charge in the pan, the priming charge. We were really trying to sell hammer as the frizzen to just piss off some of those gun guys that are like, blah, blah, blah. It's not a cock. It's a hammer. Who cares? Well, and, but that was what they call it. I mean, that, those are period yeah. terms. So I'm, I'm just trying to yeah. be correct. It's like the, the sidebar for a second into the most inane social. Well, yeah, I'm going to go there. Most inane social media comment. Like we've gotten about like gun terminology. Oh gosh. Yeah. Was that like somebody wanted to argue with us that we shouldn't call them guns. And I'm like, They've been called guns for like the best part of firearms history. Like, what do you suggest? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So we get to the 1620s with the development of the true flintlock, which is, you know, popular and used up through the early to mid 1800s. And we're going to stop there on our kind of timeline of technologies because I don't know, I ain't feeling percussion ignition today. That's and when you get to the 1800s, so many things happen, right. you know, in ammo and firearms development that like, yeah, a lot, like that's what usually in the 1800s is when people assume a lot of the things that we're going to talk about became, uh, were invented when in fact they became more standardized. Yeah. So, so we should probably do the most simple and the one that we were just talking about, which is what a lot of people don't assume with firearms history is that rifling was a development of the 1800s. Yeah, and it's it's sort of well known within firearm the firearms community. I mean, better than like the general population, but you know, we like in high school level history classes or something, they say one of the reasons the Civil War was so deadly because rifling was new. Yeah, and it's not really new; it's just much more common because rifling. Um, goes back maybe to the late 15th century uh, and definitely to the 16th century. Um, and the reasons I say maybe the 15th is because it's always attributed to Augsburg, Germany in like 1498, um, which has always struck me as like a really specific date for 
an era and a topic where we don't have a lot of specific dates. Like everything else is like, yeah, wheel locks emerged in this sort of big 50 year range. And then rifling, we're like, no, it was right here, right then. And that's always been weird to me. So, Which is why, and it brings us to something that Danny wanted to make as a sidebar. Oh. He... So one time... <laughs> that's a trivia. <laughs> I, I have to like, I got to go on a rant. Um, is one time... I went to a, like a trivia night in Cody at one of the, there's a pizza place slash bar in Cody, went to it, had a weekly trivia night. And I would like to point out, I wasn't invited. On accident. I got invited by somebody else. I didn't think I could like carry on the image. I don't know. Anywho, I actually wasn't invited. Um, (laughs) But I don't like trivia anyway. So whatever. You know, like the, I've been in grad school. I went to these with like my, like fellow grad students and every once in a while you get like a history section, right? And I would long for like those periods. And then it would be like some history that I didn't, you know, didn't know anything about. And everything else was like stuff that I was just out of my wheelhouse and I was taking guesses on. Finally, and after all these trivia nights, they do a section on guns, probably because of the CFM being in the same town as this trivia night. They do a section on guns and I go through and the only one I got wrong in that whole section was when was rifling invented? Because my answer was like, 1500s Germany instead of being super precise and Ashley who was not invited and not yeah not there not there not invited knew about knew that I had gotten an incorrect answer I'm there with like a small group of people don't really know anybody else at the thing and like the town communicated to Ashley within minutes that I had got the question wrong like right and it wasn't from anyone at your table no from no one at my table from no one I actually knew (laughs) <laughs> but they knew who I was and knew Ashley and texted her. And I was just like, what is this small town living? It's so, it was so good. It really was. Um, but anyways, so rifling is something that a lot of people don't realize um, was developed, at least in the, you know, we, we think in the late 15th century, we know it's around the 1500s, um, but it's not really um, a major, it doesn't really play a major role in military uh, usage until the development of the first conically shaped cartridge, which is in the 18, early 1800s, which uh, ultimately, you know, is where this conversation about rifling is new by the time of the Civil War. Right. Um, so rifling is probably the most boring, but it's probably the most basic that I say all the time on tours, and I'm always surprised by even gun guys that don't realize how old it is. Um, um, but then you also mentioned one earlier, so we should probably talk about that one. Well, yeah. And um, when we were sort of getting on track to like doing the conventional timeline, the thing I was referring to is I have multi-shot firearms. So, you know, some of the earliest firearms are actually multiple shot guns. So one of the examples in the museum is a four shot hand cannon. Um, you know, another classic example are early organ guns where it's just like a series of barrels set in a wooden log or some other form and you just light a bunch of charges because the technology is already there. We just have to light multiple. Our organ gun has a trench. So you only light one charge and it goes boom, 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 boom. Yeah. And so ours is like that, but there's, you know, there's variations on that. And yeah, but once you have, Hey, we can light gunpowder in a barrel. Like you can just stack a bunch of barrels together and people figured that out very quickly. So multiple shotguns are something that show up really early in firearms history. You know, I think ours is attributed to like maybe 1450s, middle of the 1400s. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really early. And 
it's just one of those things that people think everything back, you know, all the first guns were just simple barrels, you know, single barrels, single projectile things, but that's not really the case. Those, it's pretty easy conceptually to move from one barrel to multiple. Well, and what's interesting, so you're referencing, you know, multiple barrels, but it's not just multiple barrels. Uh, You know, there are developments for how can you have a repeating firearm that, you know, has a cylinder like a revolver, which you mentioned the the matchlock revolver, but there's the Collier revolvers, you know, as well. And then there's the belt and fusel, which gets discussed a lot of times during the gun debate, which operates like a Roman candle. So it's not just about having like, you know, multiple barrels and a swivel breaching barrel, you know, you get really kind of complex concepts behind what is repeating. But the one thing that's frustrating <laughs> with this one is we say multi-shot um, firearms is something people don't know about. But, um, you know, and I would say probably the bulk of the population doesn't realize that there are multi-shot firearms early on but because of politics today you know a lot of people sorry that made me sound really angry at gun people for saying this but it, it's just interesting because you're what you're saying is correct but it's not like a lot of times they say examples that are actually really bad examples like you know so the one that like there are better examples out there of yeah. repeating firearms that existed early on that were fast and really ahead of their time and so the one that we you know were researching over something else you know, back when we back when we were doing our renovation was the puckle gun. Mm-hmm. Everybody went, oh, well, there was a puckle gun. So, you know, clearly, you know, look at this. Well, and it's got the, the slowest rate of fire ever. Yeah, it's it's marginally faster than like, from what I understand, it's been a while since I did this stuff. So this is going off memory, but it's like marginally faster than, you know, a standard muzzle loader. And it's always cited as one of those modern, like, or not modern, but it's cited as one of those things that sort of looks forward in, in history. That's like, see, this thing's a repeating gun and people call it like a machine gun sometimes. And it's just like, this thing is like, it's still pretty slow. Well, and with, you know, I think that it's the curator of the Royal Armories who actually has them. Uh, you know, he, he called the guy that invented the puckle gun a nutter. <laughs> It's like my favorite thing he's ever said in a forum, (laughs) Uh, you know, because it wasn't also that, you know, that, you know, prominent, but, you know, but at the same time as the invention of the puckle gun, we've got a gun in the collection that I think is far cooler. And that's that um, cross configuration, gas sealed, breech loading, repeating dog lock uh, firearm that belonged to the Earl of Meath. So, so the reality of the matter is, is no, it's not wrong to say that, you know, people were well aware of repeating firearms. They were more expensive usually, and they right. weren't necessarily adopted on the battlefield. They were more of a sporting piece for a long time. But, you know, it's often the examples they give uh, show a very limited understanding of what was available in terms of repeating technology. That's not too, like, hateful right it's, i mean it sounded a little like you just walked out of your ivory tower but i'll allow it <laughs> but it, it's, it's it's you know it's true because it's one of those things where people take a little bit of information that they have and then they right. repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and i, and I remember um thinking because i you know i came from the smithsonian and the belt and fusel randomly popped up um during a town hall that dana lash was doing and i actually you know in that circumstance i think she answered questions really really well um it was a very very difficult forum i think it was after the uh parkland shooting and but she was talking she referenced the puckle gun and then randomly said the belt and fusel and i'm like who told her about that (laughs) you know and then all of a sudden 
you know, she said it. So now all these people say Belton Fusel. And it's like the most obscure and possibly like never made and fake. Well, thing. and it's like we go to these two things. And the Belton Fusel, as I understand the story, is like that there is actually, like, there's like documentation that these guns there's, were around, but like the modern examples are nobody's really yes. sure if they're actually yes, yes, the ones yes. or not. You are correct. The the gun existed. The designs are there. It's the actual um, surviving models. But anyways, you were saying. But like we, and this is sort of a broader statement. Like I don't want to get too far down in like why this is a political debate, but if we are going to have these things as like evidence in this debate on one side or the other, like we keep going to the same well, like we go to the Puckle gun and the Belt and Fusel and like the Ferguson and the Giordoni. Like it's all, it's like, those are the, the things, but there's like this whole other realm of types that are never explored. And that was one of the things like talking about matchlocks, like potentially the first revolvers were matchlocks. And there's, we have it referenced in our archival collections because Winchester Take was- Take that Sam Colt. <laughs> yeah. Sam Colt definitely saw revolvers like before this. Uh, before. Yeah, that, that was all a bunch of BS he was spewing, but that's fine. Um, but anyways, like, you know, Winchester had it illustrated in their like office collection. So like they knew of this thing that was out there. And now I think there's an example, there's a couple of examples in like some German museums, but essentially it's a revolving matchlock long gun. I don't know if it's rifled or smoothbore. Um, but, you know, you have to manually index the cylinder instead of, you know, the, you know, in the uh, single action system that Colt comes up with where the cylinder indexes automatically. But, you know, it's all the pieces are there, you know, probably 300 years before Colt. And, um, you know, that's a it's like a six shot uh, cylinder, I think. Um, so there's that one that's really early. There's the Earl of Meath gun that you talked about. It's like it's a gas sealed gun. Um, it's super early. Um, the Lorenzoni's gotten more attention um, in recent years, but that's another oh, one. Oh, yeah, those magazine-fed Lorenzoni's. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, that's another one that doesn't seem to enter the conversation that often, but... And I think, uh, you know, I, I was a little critical on, you know, when you reference the random things that you know, and I think the random things are important because, right. uh, you know, I'm going to kind of contradict myself a little bit, but they are important because a lot of times when you do talk to people, they'll say those things didn't exist. Right. And then, you know, you can, all you need is, you know, one or two examples to say, no, they did exist. But I think, you know, where we're, where sometimes the mark is missed on the fact that a lot of these things weren't just one or two things, they were common use. And so it's good to know the one or two things, but you know, when you really start digging into these things, there's like a whole pool of stuff that existed in a lot of these categories. Yeah. Don't let the one or two like prime examples obscure the pile of others, like under, you know, underneath them, underneath their popularity, because um, yeah, there's just a whole slew of interesting things. There's, there's things that could be considered like early cartridge. There's early breech loaders. Um, there's all this stuff that was out there in this time frame that you never gained enough popularity. It was always sort of ex more expensive and, you know, a matchlock musket that's a lot cheaper probably works good enough. And this other thing that might be a little finicky because it's made with some, you know, the metal, the metallurgy is not great and the ability to machine this stuff is, you know, far, far off. So all that combines to make them really expensive and harder to get but they're there like they're they're there and they're around and there's enough surviving examples to suggest that they were not as rare as maybe 
we understand them or think that they were. Yeah. And, you know, it's, sorry. <laughs> Danny just stood up on the camera. And I, I thought he was just like, I thought that was like his mic drop moment and he was just leaving and it just really distracted me. Um, so we talked about, you know, rifling. We've talked about repeaters. We've, um, we'll, I, I want to come, we've been talking for a while, so we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, but one thing that I want to talk about before we maybe we close on breech loaders um, is, and if there's anything you want to talk about, um, is the is safety mechanisms. I think that does not get enough attention um, to the fact that people were caught, like, it wasn't just uh, the Wild West over in Europe. Um, you know, people were cognizant of safety with these firearms from early on. So not only um, were they thinking about safety in terms of rules for shooting sports competitions and firing lines really early on, but they were also implementing safety mechanisms on their firearms. And so before before same time, I don't know. I never know the exact year on the dog lock, but um, you know the flint, the true flintlock. When people talk about it, it has a half cock position on the cocking mechanism. So you pull it back one click, and technically that functions as you know a safety mechanism. And as I always say, a safety mechanism is a device that can fail. Um, that hence the expression "don't go off half cocked." Uh, but that functions as a, a safety mechanism because if you press the trigger during the time that it's in half cock, it doesn't fire. But around the same time, maybe a little bit earlier, when I reference a dog lock, that's a flint lock that doesn't necessarily, some of them had half cock, some of them didn't. But the way that you actually lock the hammer back was with this little catch. It was an external safety that would catch the back of the cocking mechanism and like physically restrain it back. Um, and then you would, you know, like you would click a safety today, you'd move the safety and the, you know, the hammer um, would be ready to fire. So that's, you know, something that existed. Um, those early, like the snap pants, I think had those pan covers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, uh, and uh, match locks had pan covers too. Yes, you are correct. Uh, <laughs> that earned your trivia point back, Danny. <laughs> Huzzah. Uh, you know, but there were lots of like, I remember um, going up to Canada um, to speak at the Canadian Guild of Arms Collectors and there were all, I was shocked because they all collect some like really early firearms. I was shocked at the multitude of ways that people developed safety mechanisms that I can't even remember to describe because there were so many different ways that people created active safeties on their firearms to prevent negligent or accidental discharge. And one of my favorite examples of this is like um, Queen Anne era pistols. So mm -hmm. like English pistols, early 17th century, um, like those guns, they exhibit, there's such variety in them. Um, you know, we have multi-barreled examples. I think we have a six-barreled example. Um, we have, you know, single shot versions. They're all smaller, typically pretty, you know, what we would consider like a pocket gun today. Um, and they show some really interesting features because they have a safety mechanism that's essentially it's kind of like a tang safety or maybe a bar safety and so the the cocking piece that has the flint um there's a sliding bar and arms essentially go around the flint and when the pan cover is back there's a notch inside the pan cover so it engages it like it's like a double engaged safety so when you slide that bar forward it engages a notch in the back of the cocking piece to prevent that from moving. And then it also engages that those arms that sort of wrap around that then engage the, the frizzen. There's like a little notch, a little dimple in the frizzen and it engages that so that you're both, you've locked both the cocking piece 
and the frizzin so that like there if until that bar is moved out of the way there's no way for this gun to fire it's it's really interesting and there's also i'm going to get the name wrong but um i think it's called a tap lock is the the whole system but essentially it's a multi-shot version of these pistols and they have I think Eric and Jonathan both called me out for calling it a selector lever, but I'm going to stick with, <laughs> you know, they're multi-shot guns and they typically have like two barrels on top, two barrels on bottom, or maybe one in uh, one top, like an over under arrangement. Um, and you can, there's a piece that rotates that prevents the second barrel from firing. So you, you load up your powder charge and everything and fire it. And then you can turn this lever and that'll give you a flat, that'll uncover a flash hole to the lower barrel. Um, if presumably if you were to engage that sooner, then both barrels would fire. So you have like a selector between single shot and two shots or four shots or whatever. It, it all goes off at once, but you know, I think it's sort of a selector lever, which, you know, it's one of those features that we wouldn't think would be on such a old gun, but it's there in addition to these really intricate and pretty thought out safety mechanisms. Yeah. Um, and so, I, I mean, there's so many things that existed. I mean, we, I, we, we said repeaters, but I said magazine Lorenzoni. Right. <laughs> you know, so the concept of cylinders, you know, and magazines also. Yeah. To the 16 and 1700s. I mean, and earlier with the matchlock, you know, revolver. And so like those types of mechanisms. Uh, but then the other one that we, we, I wanted to mention just because it's, it goes back to that whole, everybody always locks on to that one example when there are a lot of other examples and that is the breech loaders. So there are a lot of different breech loaders, but the one that gets the most press is the Ferguson. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sorry. I almost said Patterson again. <laughs> It's close. it's close. We're just going to skip like a century and lots of action types and jump straight into World War One's Patterson device. Yeah. So everybody always says, like, this question I get constantly in the museum. Do you have a Ferguson rifle? No. But I have something more rare <laughs> than a Ferguson. And so what people don't realize is around the time that the Ferguson rifle was developed, which if you're not familiar with the Ferguson, it's a breech-loading rifle where basically the way to fire it is, uh, or the way to load it is you unscrew the trigger guard and you wind the trigger guard down and on the top uh, um, at the back of the barrel, the breech of the barrel, this big basically like nugget this lug, you know, nugget <laughs> drops down as you unwind the trigger guard. And so it leaves a hole there so you can load ammunition and spin the trigger guard back up and lock it into place. Um, they're very rare in the U.S. and so no, we don't have one. But um, we do have what's called the Hearst screw plug. And the Hearst screw plug was developed around the same time because there were a series of tests that the, that the different military departments in England were trying to create an effective breech loaders. So there were a several of these examples out there. And the Hearst is very similar to the Ferguson. The only main difference is that there's one extra step involved because the um, place that you loaded in the breech was actually underneath the gun so that you had to turn the gun upside down to take the trigger guard out to load it and then to wind it back up to fire the gun. So obviously not as fast, not as efficient as the Ferguson, but still the same concept. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of those things that like, hey, there was actually like, they were trying to do this thing in the 1700s. Um, so there were a lot of examples that came out of that, that they tested um, in several different trials to come up with which gun they would use. And they used the Ferguson and that's why that one's the one that's remembered, but it's certainly not the only breech loader that existed yeah and that that's a great example of sort of the 
because like I've been up in the galleries and like people like ask about the Fergus and I'm like we have this thing that's a lot like it right over here and they're like no I want the Fergus well in Herbert house um Herb would you know said it was more rare (laughs) yeah like they're the Hearst is less common and again these are things that we're talking about there's like a handful of each eaters you know that exist in the U.S. um so yeah, they're they're both really really rare, but it's just one of those things that people the Ferguson has brand recognition, I guess. Yeah. Um, so what other breech loaders are there from the time period? Because the Ferguson Hearst type of mechanism is not the only one that exists. Right, and there's others. I mean, we talked about the the Earl of Meath and stuff like that, which is a little bit earlier. Um, but probably the one the most readily the one that comes to mind most readily is the the knock gun. Um, which normally when you say the knock gun, people think of the later knock volley gun. Um, but the one in our collection is a single barrel gun where. Is it like one H knock and one's S knock yeah, or something? something like that. Knock, knock joke. <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there? Breach loading guns. Oh boy. Um, it's almost five o'clock. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, this is S ours is an S knock and the barrel unthreads from the, from the action and sort of it's on this sliding bar. So you unthread it and slide it forward. And then like the barrel tips forward. And it's like, it's a really big gun. Like it's not, oh, it's, huge. it's like, it's like Brown best musket size. It's not like a little um, screw barrel. Pistol I think or anything. it's bigger than that. I think it's bigger than that. Yeah. It, it's, it's large. And um, yeah. So the whole thing slides forward and sort of tips up and like, you can then reload the action and you know, it's, it's a crazy way to do a breech loader, but they, they did it. So yeah, yeah it's, it's, that's good another on, one that's pretty neat. Good on them. But I feel like this might be the longest podcast we've done. And maybe the most boring. No, I don't know. No, I actually thought. I, I think it's interesting. I was I riveted for that one time I wasn't listening. <laughs> except for that one time that you weren't listening. It was, was rubbing her eyes though, so I don't know. No, it's nice and long, which we can be like, it's a bonus long episode because there was no episode last week. Shh, don't tell anybody. They maybe didn't. Okay, notice. fine. Well, it just will be long and we won't say anything. Also, you're not editing this part out. <laughs> you haven't talked yet today. So, yeah. oh, I tried to talk at one point and you guys completely ignored me. Oh, no. What did you want to say? About the comment, Danny's comment that they shouldn't be called guns. And I was like, well, what did they suggest it should be called? Uh, they wanted us to use the word. Just continued talking. <laughs> like I just tried. To yeah, I was her. very excited about this episode. <laughs> uh, to answer your question, they want us to only use the word firearm, I believe, because guns was disrespectful. Why? Why is guns disrespectful? Is there like? I have no idea. Uh, that guy was just really mad at us. Yeah, he, he, he was not was like mad us. At us. I think, and I don't know. I. I can't remember if we like let the conversation go anywhere or if we just ignored it, but yeah, he, he wanted us to use the word firearms and gun was somehow disrespectful to them. Mm. We triggered him. We, we did trigger him. (laughs) And I think on that note. All right, guys, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have anything you want to hear, like get a hold of us on social media. Like, get a hold of us on social media. I just went Valley Girl. It's fine. (laughs) Talk to you guys later. See ya.